um, I tried to meet, I always try to meet as many people as I can. Um, if you're, seriously, if you're new here and we haven't had a chance to meet each other, he totally stole my chair. This is how it is on our staff. I get no respect. I'm like the Rodney Dangerfield of pastors. <laughs> Those for you younger, you can ask your parents about that. Um, but um, we really are glad that you're here. And, and let me just, I'm, we're sincere also. Please don't, don't leave here today without us being able to say hi to you. Uh, we do want to make sure that we introduce ourselves. And so here's what we're going to be doing now that they've shifted me over here. <laughs> is uh, we're going to try doing something a little bit uh, differently today. We did some of this maybe back during COVID because it just worked well, maybe in some ways with the camera. But one of the things that uh, we've noticed is that there's different topics that come up that sometimes the best, the best way to approach is isn't to do like a, more of a, a monologue type of, of a, maybe a presentation, but it's to do much more of a discussion. And so we, one of the things that we're going to be discussing about is also something that we do actually regularly as a podcast called Beyond Sunday. And if you ever want to check it out, um, we, we'd love for you to be able to go there. We haven't made a big deal about it because we're all still trying to learn and figure it out, uh, what, it, what it looks like. But we would invite you to go there. But this is kind of what we do. We believe that God's word is amazing. There's, an amazing, there's amazing ideal truths that come out of it. But we really do believe the best way to study scripture is not isolated and alone on an island but actually in the midst of other believers, uh, not only inside of your own church family, that's where we see it, is inside of our own church family here at Cornerstone, but even too, I think God's broader church has a lot to teach us about just the truths of scripture. So we're gonna look at actually something today that we kind of launched off last week, which is the difficulty of approaching a text where we don't have all the answers. So you go to, to 2 Thessalonians 2, and, and uh, today, just so everybody knows, Marika Hogan, let me know. She's figured out who uh, the man of lawlessness is. So she's back over here. If you have any questions, she'd be totally happy to answer. Where's Marika? Yeah, there, she is. there she is. Okay, Marika's going to be able to answer any questions on who the man of lawlessness is. She's going to hate me now. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's Todd. He's the man of lawlessness. But, um, but what do we do sometimes where Paul presents a lot of information but even in that information, though, maybe sometimes we don't always fully know kind of what to do with some of those, those aspects of it. So you mind just really quickly maybe walking us through, giving us a, a very brief, hey, here's 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, just so we can kind of play, play catch up and then we can kind of have a discussion through it. Absolutely. So if you have your Bible, it's going to open there, 2 Thessalonians 2, that whole chapter we're going to, Todd took us through it, took a couple passes at it last Sunday. And as we were talking about it, just uh, it seemed to be one of those times, one of the things we always talk about is what's the best way to teach each text? Not only who's the best, like the per person to communicate it, but the format of it. And even on this one, it seemed like this is one where we'll teach the text, but even more what we want, what we hope to do is model the way we ought to study passages like this where some things are clear and some things are less clear. So what I want to do is just kind of, by way of reminder, take us through first what's clear and then the things that are less clear and how do we navigate that? Because that's rough. We all struggle with uncertainty. We all struggle with those times where we might want more certainty than what we have. And what do we do there? So check this out. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 1. Paul says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together to him. Those are two things that are pretty clear. It's pretty clear that what Paul's doing right here is he's hearkening us back to what he wrote in the first letter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13, when he starts talking about this idea of the coming of Jesus, his parousia is the Greek word for it, his royal coming as king. 
in which the, the way that this would have worked was the, 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 the delegates, those of, of honor, would go out and meet this king and then usher him into his kingdom is the way that that, that word was understood. And he talks about this in, back in 1 Thessalonians 4, this idea that at that time, those who were believers who have died will be raised first to be with the Lord. And then those who were alive at the term, he uses this word at the time, he uses this term, they will be caught up to meet them in the air. And then the whole point of it is, we will always be with the Lord. He's hearkening us back to that. But then he says this, we ask you brothers, in light of those two things, the coming of Jesus and our gathering to him, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. Some other teaching or word had come to them that had contradicted and caused confusion to what he said before. And it was this, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And we talked a lot in the first book about what that phrase day of the Lord means. Again, Paul is calling us back to what he talks about in chapter five of the first letter. This day of sudden destruction that would come upon unbelievers. But back there, he also said that those who are followers of Jesus would not be surprised. They would not come upon them suddenly and unexpectedly. Why? Because he says, you're already children of that day. You've come under Jesus as Lord, as King, and you are already being transformed by that. You won't be caught off guard by this day. But in between that first letter and the second one, this other thing came that can cause confusion. And so he's saying, okay, these three things were clear in the first one. Now you're unclear about it now. Now there's distress that's come in. And then he moves in and he says this in verse three. Can you check this one out? <laughs> Who's got the clicker? You, you do is. take that. I'll take it. I'll take it for this part. I'm not awesome. good. He says, he says, you haven't missed the day. Don't be distressed. You haven't missed the day of the Lord. Someone said it already came and it, you haven't missed it. He talked in chapter one. Here's the reason you can have confidence that you are truly followers of Jesus because even though you're suffering and you're wondering, is this God's judgment on us? He says, yes, in a way it is the judgment that you will be considered worthy of God's kingdom because in the midst of your suffering, what's coming out of your life? Love and faith and steadfastness. So on the one hand, he gives them like a, a more subjective or personal confidence. Look at the life of Jesus, the character of Jesus that's already coming out in your life. And then in chapter two, he says, now let me give you more of an objective or outward facing focus that, makes you, that can give you confidence you haven't missed the day of the Lord. And he says this, he says, don't let anyone see, deceive you because that day, the day of the Lord won't come until, and he gives us three things, three events or, or figures that have to come into play first before the day of the Lord comes. He says, this rebellion must come first and this man of lawlessness who's revealed. And then he says in verse five, remember when I told you about these things. I know, right? <laughs> Can you imagine being the dude that missed that Sunday? He's like, oh, my kids had like a baseball game. So does anybody have the notes for when Paul explained to us what the man of lawlessness was? Baseball is huge in Thessalonica. Ex ex you see for know. sure, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It was the Thessalonian pastime. Yeah. yeah. But he says, okay, you know it hasn't happened because this rebellion comes. This man of lawlessness needs to be revealed. And he says, I already told you about these things and they haven't happened yet, at least from the time that Paul's writing this letter. And so he's like, you know, you haven't missed the day. And then he goes on in verse six and he says, you also know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. So we have three things he says that have to have three events or figures. There's a rebellion, there's a man of lawlessness, and there's this restraining force, which in verse six, he calls a what. And then if you see down there in the, at the end of that verse in verse seven, only he who now restrains it. So there's this restrainer is both a what and a who. 
you can see we're already getting into the parts that are a little bit less clear. That sounds like Dr. Seuss. It does. It does yeah. a little bit, right? Who? And this is the part where we have to start treading carefully. As far as the return of Jesus and the promise that we'll be with him forever, and not only that, what he says there in verse 8, I guess it's over here for you guys, that this man of lawlessness when he's revealed, guess who wins? Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. We're sure Jesus come back. We're sure we're going to be gathered together with him. We're sure that Jesus will ultimately win. In between that, though, there's some places where we're less sure and we have to tread carefully, especially with the natural desire that we have to, uh, to, to struggle with mystery, to struggle with what's less clear. And to sometimes, we all love in like the, 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 the true crime movies or things like that, when there's like the blurry picture of the car and they say, hey, can you zoom in on the license plate? And it's totally blurry. And then they do that magic trick in the movies where it's just, oh, it's perfectly clear. We can read it now. We all want, we all wish we had this magic power to take things that are less clear and magically with a push of a button, it's perfectly clear. But sometimes we don't have that. And how do we grapple with that, that point kind of in between? Well, that's the thing of going, there's, there's things here that are, they would have been absolutely clear to the church in Thessalonica. Definitely. But just because it was clear for them doesn't mean it's clear for us. Yeah. And are we okay with that tension? Yeah. I, think that's, I think that's a good place to start for us of going, man, there are things that are clear to all of us, but then there are things that were clear to them that we just don't have access to because we weren't privy to the conversation. And, and God in his sovereignty, the Holy Spirit and his wisdom is the, you don't, we don't need to know that. Yeah, so how do we handle that? <laughs> how do we handle that then when we're actually reading our Bibles then? So how do we handle it? <laughs> uh, uh-huh. <laughs> no. Well, because like, there's kind of two cliffs. Like on the one hand, you can do the magic button that clarifies everything when you, you may not be able to. You can also say how oh, we don't know anything and just kind of punt and say, let's Please just go, let's go get lunch. We're done. Yeah. How do we navigate in between well, those Well, two? that's where like, I know I'm prone, and I don't know about you guys. I mean, I'm just curious. Well, I know you two. I'm prone to, when I get to a passage that's, that's difficult like this, I go, okay, what are the things that are known? What are the things that, are, um, that we're going to be delving into that would be, we're going to be speculating at best. My tendency is I want to think deeply, but then at some point I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to punt really quick because I'm like, ah. It, it, which I know can... I can be prone to laziness on that side, and I'm probably not being faithful in the text. And some people are going to probably spend way too much time on something that's not clear, and it, it's probably just not a good use of time. In fact, I'm thinking through, um, like in Paul, Paul in, um, in 1 Timothy, um, there's a, I, just, I think it's a fascinating passage. Um, I look at you guys, you were anticipating this one. This is actually, we were talking about this, and it was like, oh yeah, we probably should talk about this a little bit. But it, Paul in... Uh, Man, you guys actually have the text. I was going to paraphrase it. Now I feel obligated to read it. Um, well, you guys can read along and make sure I'm paraphrasing somewhat accurately. Um, so the, the church, or Paul's writing this corrective letter uh, to Timothy, and he's addressing uh, what's going on in, uh, in Ephesus. And he's, he's going, hey, there's, there's been people who come in and they've, they've, they're introducing this false teaching. Don't be a part of that. But then he goes on and he says, don't engage in speculation either. You know, don't, don't, don't engage in these endless genealogies and things that can't be known um, that are going to promote speculation rather than a good stewardship from God. And then he, and he says, okay, our teaching should be something that's born from, or that the target, the objective is love, that's coming from a pure heart and a sincere faith. But he goes, but... And a good conscience. 
I'm paraphrasing again. They can read. No, but, but going, if this is the goal, and then he says, but if we jump into these issues of speculation and we're, we're kind of paying attention to these things that can't be known, man, that's dangerous because what, what ends up happening is going, man, we end up making conclusion, or conclusive and decisive statements about things that we really don't even understand. And we don't even understand the, the implications of that. Yeah. And just going, man, as we, as we are thinking through like Second Thessalonians or we get to these passages that are really complex, we don't want to veer into the side of being lazy, which I know some of us can be prone to. But I also go, man, we don't want to delve into like speculation where we're making definitive statements about things that just can't be known for sure. Yeah. And, and, and spending time and drawing conclusions about things that, Really, we don't know what we're talking about. Yeah, and Paul will say, just it doesn't later lead to humility. It leads to arrogance. It leads yeah. to pointless discussions right. that go absolutely nowhere. Because we're trying to, to do something that Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 says, don't go beyond what's written. Yeah. Right. Like, don't go beyond that. Stop. Make sure that you're always able to say, look, there's these places, Deuteronomy 29, 29, where there's these secret things that belong to the Lord. The revealed stuff belongs to us and right. our kiddos that we might know and embrace the law. But there's these places where, where God says, and Paul is saying, you know, in those places, that will only lead to disunity. Right. It will lead to, to arguments that are pointless. But I think there's another side of it, which to kind of shift into this text a little bit more, is that it'll start to cause us to hold firmly to things that we're never intended to hold firmly to. Do you want to maybe kind of talk through that just a little bit? Yeah, I think so. I think, like, I find verse 7 up there in First Timothy so convicting. This idea that... You can make a confident assertion about something. You can confidently present something that you don't actually understand. And not only that, I think that in times of uncertainty, we are especially prone to the temptation to listen to someone who comes off as confident. To go, oh, in the midst of not knowing which way is up, this person says, guys, it's black and white. It's really simple. Boom, boom, boom. This is exactly the way it is. Sign up for my newsletter here. Like, that is a temptation we will face. And I think the last couple of years have really borne that out, the way that people have grappled for anyone who said, I know the way, follow me. And I think that's something that we've all wrestled with too, that, that sense of saying, I know sometimes what people want from me is confidence and black and white precision, but sometimes you go, I'm confident that I don't want to go beyond what's written. Yeah, so like in this passage, <laughs> in this passage, like we know, and I think this is where, if we, if we just look at the this, this section in 2 Thessalonians 2, like to your point where you started, we know some things with certainty. Yeah. Like, like we know with confidence that Jesus is returning. Mm -hmm. And we know that Jesus wins. And I, and I go, okay, so th these are the primary things because yeah. they're clear. But then there's also a whole bunch of things that are secondary or tertiary things that if we allow the secondary things to become primary, we end up engaging in speculation. But if not, you know what I mean? I'm going, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, but going... So how do we keep the main thing the main thing? Right? I think that's, that's the big question. I think, I think again, those, those senses of... There's one more thing I think that we can be clear of from that passage. I'm going to go back a couple of slides because I kind of passed it over beforehand. But here in verses 9 through 12, 2 Thessalonians 2, there's one more thing that's crystal clear, and it's this. Loving the truth is essential. Discerning truth from error is essential. I mean, I just highlighted those phrases up there. But he talks about this, those who will be susceptible to the temptation, to the, dilute, the deception coming from this man of lawlessness, whoever he may be when he comes. 
It's because the clear truth that we see in the gospel of Jesus as God's son, of Israel's Messiah, who came and demonstrated his salvation through an act of sacrificial love. He's seated at the right hand of God now as the ruler of all things. The promise of all things being made new. That is clear truth in scripture. And he says, but yet there are those who by their refusal to love that truth will believe what's false. There's almost a binary choice there. It's either believe what is true or you are relegated, therefore, to believe what's false. And I think that's the other part is go, okay, Jesus is coming back. He wins. We'll be with him forever. And loving the truth is absolutely essential to knowing right, right way up on this. Yeah, and I would say there's another side of this, just so you know why this is so important that we're looking at it, is there's another side that just says, look, it's, sometimes it's the binary thing of truth and false. But I, th- I love why he grabbed First Timothy is that sometimes there are things that we speculate about that we need to be so careful what we're doing there. We need to hold that with a sense of humility so that the church maintains unity. Because if we start to get caught off on these things that we're kind of speculating and unsure, and we think it's this. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with doing the hard work and even trying to wrestle through what it might be. But I've always found that whenever we start to go into places that there's speculation, this is where churches start to fall apart. And therefore, we need to stay fastened on those things that we know to be and are confident in, the convictional things that we can hold to for sure so that we don't kind of delve into these ways in which then we just, just kind of end up arguing over pointless realities to kind of what Paul talks about when, he, when he's talking about these myths and genealogies and different things at, at different points. So maybe like for you, okay, I don't, you, you laid out this idea when we were talking of a sandbox to play in, right? Yeah. So let's kind of, let's give people, okay, that's, that's the idea. Yeah. And let's kind of land this a little bit more though. Okay, so what, how should we approach this thing? What are maybe some key things that we need to, that we need to know so that we can approach this kind of thing well? I think on the one hand is to say, I, I, when we were looking at Second Timothy, just, or First Timothy just a second ago, I think there's a difference between speculation and theorizing. I think that there can be a good place for saying, hey, as I study God's word, the man of lawlessness could be someone like this. The restrainer could be something like this. This rebellion could be something like this. And I think there is a good side of saying, hey, could it be this? But again, having a clear line between what might be a theory or an opinion or, or one way that it could work and what is a clear uh, teaching in scripture. Because I think there is a good place of as long as uh, we recognize what is a theory and then also say, therefore, I don't want to just entertain just this one theory. I want to have more of a broad conversation. What are other ways that people have seen this? What are other ways that Christians throughout history have seen this? Because you know what? I think if I was living in like Germany or Austria in the 1930s, I would have a pretty good idea in my mind of who I thought the man of lawlessness might be. Yeah. Right? Hitler. Right? Yeah. In the same way, if I was like a dyed-in-the-wool Catholic person in the 1500s and this dude Martin Luther starts kicking up a bunch of dust, I might go, hmm, could that be him? Or maybe, you know, go a couple generations later and you see the way that all the reformers are looking back going, I think the Pope's the man of lawlessness. And you just see the way that throughout history there's been so many different ways that Christians have tried to make sense of this. And we are a little bit captive to our moment. Our, our, our view is a little bit limited, limited by our experiences which is also one of the things that's really helpful when you, when you look at the way Christians have looked at this throughout history and you see the way, oh, in their day, in their time, in their historical situation, I totally see how they would have believed that. And yet, history has kept moving forward. 
You know what I mean? How do we hold this a little bit loosely? So I think if I, I don't know where it is. You know where it is in the slides. Can you go forward to that little I, sandbox? I think, you, I think you just introduced an interesting um, principle, though, is when we're actually, actually trying to read Scripture and interpret Scripture well, um, oh, yeah, you just you put something up here similar to it of going, we, we want to work. When, you, when you're reading the Bible, like re, identifying the things that are clear in, the, in its context, right? Yeah. You know, like, like as we're working through Second Thessalonians, okay, we, we know the things that are, that are certain here. We know the things that are just very, very clear from what Paul's saying in the passage here. But then there's also a principle of going, but what is it, how does it connect to other passages of Scripture, right? Yeah, yeah. And then how does that actually play itself out in its historical context? We're going, I think we can make a pivot here and talk through, okay, so then when we're actually reading the text, what are some things that we should consider as we're actually walking through the Bible and maybe just go like, how do you guys do it? Because this is, I think sometimes we just read it on our own and go, me, my Bible, we're good. Yeah, and my study notes in my Bible are... And that one guy who I love listening to his sermons <clears throat> when I'm driving to work, like, yeah, I know how he views this text. So how do, you, how do you do it? Yeah, well, I think on one level we've talked about this, and I'll let you get back to your sandbox yeah. here in a second. But one is you do have to study the passage. Yeah. And in fact, I would just say this. One of the things one of my professors told us once, it's not only understanding what the text says, but sometimes you have to understand what the text is not saying. Mm. So in other words, when I look at this, the text in this particular case, there's some clear things that it's, Paul has decided, the Spirit of God has moved him not to reveal certain parts of it, but we need to actually know the passage that we're looking at yeah. and how to think through it so that we even know what are those places maybe where, where it's not, uh, where things aren't coming out of it. We, we're uncertain about some certain components of it, but you want to keep going into the rest of the biblical story? Yeah, I think, okay, yeah, because obviously starting with what is this, what is the text, what is, what is the best way that we can understand what Second Thessalonians 2 would have meant to the best that we can understand the way that the Thessalonians in the first century would have understood it. That's what we're striving for when we look at the text. But then also seeing that passage as part of this one unifying story that all points to Jesus in Scripture and going, okay, how does this fit into that storyline? Not only when in, when in that story did Paul write it, but what also what is he, was, he, was he talking about? Was he, was he pointing them forward, it seems like, to the ultimate return of Jesus and victory? It seems like that here. Okay, so this is something coming from the middle of the story, talking about the end of the story. Not only that, what you want to do is you want to think about what are other passages that seem to be talking about this same idea, these same ideas. So you're going to look at 2 Thessalonians 2 and kind of like you did last week go, well, there's things here that seem really similar to like what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. Not only that, a little while later, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks a lot about the return of Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. That should be probably part of the way we put the math together and the way we look at this. And then John's vision in Revelation, this ultimate victory of Jesus over this, this, uh, this serpent who's wreaked havoc from Genesis 3, that should be part of it too. And so there is a way in which you're kind of putting together this composite picture with the different views and glimpses we see throughout God's story. And already, to me, that sounds like a lot to hold together in just my mind, which is why I'm so glad I don't hold it together just in my mind. And I think that's the, the next part. So on the one hand, as we're seeking to do this, we want to pay careful attention to God's word, but we want to do it together in community with God's people. That we are not meant to study scripture alone with our Bible on an island. Yeah, no, we, we are meant to do this as part of a spiritual family. The same spirit who inspired the word we talk about in 2 Timothy 3 
is the spirit who indwells the people of God to help us to make sense of the things that God's given to us in his word. But even then, I think there's two ways that we look at it. We've already talked about this a little bit. There's a sense of who are the people that God's put around me. This is my interpretive community, if you will. I think it's one of the things what, that's been fun in doing this podcast that we've done. And again, the point of this this Sunday was not just to plug the podcast, but we felt like, wow, it'd be good to have a good conversational dynamic. But I do think in the, in the, even in the friendships that the three of us share together, there is a sense of you two are the first people I come to if I'm studying something going, hmm, what, do you, what does that say? Hey, have you ever looked at this before? And it's been fun to kind of have that sense of like... Yeah, a, and I've said stuff to you guys before. And, you, and I don't know if you guys have ever seen scrunchy face. When somebody's like, they give you that look like you're stupid... I've experienced it from them a lot. Where I'm like, hey, what do you think? And they do scrunchy face on me. <laughs> but just as much the, the light bulb face of, whoa, I'd never thought of that before. And that's kind of the fun thing of doing this together. But in the same way, we recognize, even here in Southern California and Simi Valley, some of us may have come from other parts of the world, other parts of the country. So there's a little bit of diversity in the way that we look at the text. But we're also a little bit limited by our local area, which is why... Another amazing element of the way that we study God's word is in conversation with the global community of believers. How are people in other parts of the world and other historical situations understanding these things? So it's both contemporary other believers in other parts of the world and throughout history, the historical church. I think this is one of the things that I think I'm, I'm maybe among the three of us, you bring the strongest flavor to this sense of looking at church history, historical theology, how have we understood it. But it's kind of like you put all those things together and here, can you click it one more time for me? It's kind of like, if you will, this defines the, the four corners of the sandbox. The, the sandbox we play in to build the cool sandcastle as we're seeking to understand God's word. It's, it's, it's bordered by these things. Let's understand the passage we're studying in light of all of scripture, in community with other believers around us, and in conversation with the church throughout time and throughout the world. It's a lot of work, which is why none of us does this entirely on our own. But when yeah. you get to a point like this, this is a whole lot of like backstory for uh-huh. like getting to like going, okay, so now, now what do we do with this? So if I understand the passage, I, I, I understand kind of the biblical narrative, I part of Cornerstone in the local community and we're kicking this around. We, we end up looking at the historical side of things, but I still come to Second Thessalonians and go, <laughs> um, well, what, what do I do? Yeah. Because there's not consensus. Yeah. So what do I do? Yeah, <clears throat> well, like on one level, like I think after you've, after you've exhausted all these realities and, and you're sitting there like Augustine with, did, with, uh, one of the old, old church say, who's that? Yeah, an old, old dead guy back in the 4th and 5th century that, you know, we kind of look back to as one of the greatest theologians within the church where he just said, I don't know. You know, he, he, just, <laughs> he, he was talking about the illustrator, yeah, except he was more like, I don't know, he was from a certain area, but... Um, but there's this side of it where eventually there is this place where you have to go along with Paul and not go past what's written. Yeah. And it, it creates a sense of mystery, right? So in other words, like when I was studying for this stuff, I was looking at contemporary people, people that have been around at the time. So I'm looking at what John MacArthur says and what John Piper says and what Sam Storm said and, and what R.C. Sproul. All four of those men are godly people that have greatly influenced my life, but they all disagree. And then I look back through church history and it's like, oh, Wait. They kind of all disagree on some of these things. Well, then you have to come to this point where there is a grand mystery. Yeah. There's this place where you start to realize, I'm so thankful in that little sandbox, though, all those voices correct us and keep us from going outside of the sandbox. So in other words, when you look back at the first coming of Jesus, there were different religious groups that interpreted what the Messiah would be like when he came. Mm-hmm. Each of them, by the way, missed it. 
They all missed it in a different way. They had elements of it. But they all had yeah. elements that were true because they didn't talk together and work together. And I would say what this does is it forces us to say some of the outcome. Well, let's not be disunified, but let's actually press ourselves together and be unified as a means of protecting ourselves from going off onto wrong tangents or into arrogant kind of speculation. Yeah, it's, it's like having a diversity. This is why, like, in a, even in our doctrinal statement, when we kind of try to identify those areas that are primary or secondary or tertiary, it's that sense of going, okay, where, where, not just do we not care, it's not about importance of those doctrines, it's about places where there's more clarity and certainty in the text and where, there, where there's less clarity, which, which means the best way to hold it is, is graciously together with others and have diverse conversation partners as we think about last things, as we think about issues in regard to the return of Jesus. But that's so different than the way, like, culturally, societally, we end up like in the echo chamber, mm -hmm. we listen to people who think like us and affirm the things that we actually already think. And then tell us, how could anybody see it differently? Yeah, and so the, the need, when, when, when we're actually participating in this, in this sandbox, if I'm understanding you guys right, it's going, okay, know the passage in its context, you know, see the, the whole story of God, understand what the, how the local church is processing it, engage with, you know, kind of people from different voices and whatnot. And if I'm still coming to a place of, man, there's just not a lot of clarity, consensus, there is a degree of mystery. In order for me to stay in that, it almost necessitates a, a humility there, oh, yeah. and assuming that I don't have the answers. Mm -hmm. And are we okay with that? Are we okay with coming to that conclusion of going, yeah, well, I would say we have to. Because, and, and this is just a quote that I found. I don't know how many of you read A.W. Tozer. Um, he also has a different view than me on certain end times things. But he wrote this. He just says, worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder, overpowering love in the presence of that most ancient mystery, God. If it isn't mysterious, there can be no worship. If God can be understood by me, then I cannot worship God. Mystery always baffles the understanding, stuns the mind, and we come before God in speechless humility in the presence of the inexpressible mystery, meaning on one end, we're supposed to be around these people to, as protection, but then we're also supposed to press ourselves out there and just go, I'm not God. Like, it's this moment in which we realize that the secret things really do belong to God, and I don't have to go there, but it should create worship, I think, mm. in that moment, which oftentimes, again, I think it creates arrogance in arguing when it should create a sense right. of awe and wonder. Yeah, because if I'm the one who assumes that I have the right answer, then I'm not going to listen or engage with other spirit-filled believers mm. because I'm actually going to sit in a seat of judgment. Yeah. But if I actually have that posture of going, man, I'm not sure, let me actually listen. Yeah. And then, I think then, then all of a sudden there is that sense of both worshiping God but also then loving your brother well. Yeah, and loving our brothers well by, maybe to your point, like that sense of, hey, there's something you're seeing that I need to see. I may not buy the whole package of the way that you look at this passage, but there's something good in this that, I, and can I discern that? Can I discern what's the good thing? Even if it's just on a motivational level of saying, 
hey, you're right. The way that your view of this passage, it motivates you to love people in this way. And I may not see the passage the same way, but I agree we need to love people that way. Can, can, can we do that together? So there's a way in which we, we see the picture better, maybe not perfectly clearly, but we see the picture better together with that sense of diversity and we protect each other better. Because there is that sense where, you know, like on this one, there's maybe at least four different views on how you could look at this passage. As we converse these things together, we can also go, oh, yeah, you're taking it too far in this area and, and, and hold each other, help each other stay in the sandbox. Everybody, if you ever put, made the smart idea to put a sandbox in your backyard, you know the sand doesn't stay in the sandbox, right? It just makes such a dang mess. And it's like, hey, this helps us to, to, to stay within good bounds of not going beyond what's written, but also not settling for less than what's written either. But trying to recognize we'll see it better together than if we're on our own. Yeah, and I think like just the last thing that we kind of talked about was is it keeps us on mission. And if you've never read the Lasan Covenant before, it was, a, it was a group of people headed out by a guy named John Stott, who's, uh, he's passed away since. Yeah, 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 it was in the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. back in the, yeah. Anyway, he, he was one of the people that helped craft this, but he just said, we believe that Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in power and glory to consummate his salvation and his judgment. This promise of his coming is further to spur to our evangelism, for we remember his words that the gospel must first be preached to all nations. We believe that the, in the interim period between Christ's ascension and return is to be filled with the mission of the people of God. We have no liberty to stop before the end. We also remember his warning that false Christs and false prophets will arise as precursors to the final Antichrist. And we therefore reject as a proud, self-confident dream the notion that people can ever build a utopia on earth. Our Christian confidence is that God will perfect his kingdom. And we look forward with eager anticipation to that day, to the new heaven and new earth in which righteousness will dwell and God will reign forever. Meanwhile... We rededicate ourselves to the service of Christ and of people in joyful submission to his authority over our whole lives. In other words, we stay on task and on mission. And I yeah. think what having hold certain things in humility versus holding things maybe convictionally that we shouldn't, it allows us to have that breadth to make sure that we don't lose our partnership with our other brothers and sisters in Jesus as we seek to convey the mission. Yeah, one of the things we, we've talked about on a, on a passage like this, that again, I mean, you were sharing one commentary where a guy just kind of listed out all the different ways that people throughout history have understood this passage. And you realize, wow, it really is all over the dartboard. It's just yeah. all over the place the way people have looked at this. That I think that a, a good thing that um, was a big part of our conversations was just the sense of, compared to what's clear in this passage, Jesus' words about unity in the church are much clearer. Yeah. Like prizing and protecting and striving for unity with other believers. And unfortunately, so often, the unclear elements of this passage have led Christians to divide from one another and, and belittle one another rather than going, sure seems that what Jesus says about unity is really important. We should probably try to stand together there. And I think there was kind of three things that were on my heart as I thought about this passage in, for, in terms of what it means to pursue unity. Like one was just that unity around the things that are clear. Jesus is coming back. We will be with him forever. He will gain the ultimate victory. And those who love the truth of that will not be caught up in the deception that's, that, that's there. Like there is confidence we can have there. The second one was this idea of we can have unity around just grappling with the reality that we are, we are learners with limits. Mm -hmm. There are limitations to what we can know and what God has given us to know. And that's actually good. 
Second, uh, 1 Corinthians 13 talks about this idea that we know now in part, but when the perfect comes, which I think in that context is talking about the return of Jesus yeah. and all things being made known, then we will know fully like we're fully known. Are we okay with knowing in part right now? Because on the flip side of that, there's a danger. Remember, what motivated Adam and Eve to eat from the fruit of the knowledge of the good and evil in the beginning? It was the desire for more knowledge than what God had given them. It is good for us to help one another fight the temptation, the pride that makes us clamor for more than what God might have, may have revealed to us in this situation. And then the last one, as you showed us from here, that sense of unity in our mission. We know Jesus is coming back. We have no liberty to ease off on the mission to make disciples until then. So let's not fight and shut each other off when we have the opportunity to follow Jesus well and help other people to do the same. Amen. Yeah. All right. Well, let's do this. I'd like everybody to stand up. Cool. We're not going to finish with a song, but let's just let's stand up and let's do this. Are we singing too? We know as followers of Jesus that we have a father that what he set in motion is going to happen. You cannot stop God our Father. And that mission that he's given has come through his son. When Jesus Christ was here, he declared himself to have all authority in heaven and on earth. And so therefore he said, in light of it, you as my people, we are going to baptize, we are going to teach people. But he said, I want you all to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I want you to stay on that. And the third thing is, I'm so thankful that we have the Holy Spirit that not only guides us into truth, but compels us to know truth and to long for it. So if you're an unbeliever that was here today, you're probably like, dang, I don't, is this what church is always like? Well, we don't, it's always going to be different. It's going to always look. But here's the deal. All of you in this room, my heart is not to tell you what to think, but to teach you how to think. My heart is that you not be a group of people that just come in and go, well, you know, Todd and Christian, they've, they've thought through this, so I'll, I'll let them think for me. No. Because at any point, I would hate it if somebody... You're, <laughs> I, won't, I just have my filter again come down I stop myself but the big thing is though is my heart would be we would have a church that in a community of people as we work together through no matter what scriptures we might be looking through is that we do it as a sense of togetherness we do it in the sense of understanding that no person has landed on the ultimate truth and let me just say this, if you ever come into contact with somebody that thinks they've landed on the ultimate truth, run away from them because they don't know. All of us in here, what Christian said, we have limitations, but in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, this week, my prayer for you is that you would go in confidence into the Word of God with passion for God's Word Realizing that we don't know everything, but we know enough to join King Jesus in what he's doing in this world. So may God bless all of you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll see y'all later.